Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations for me and my guests who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Guys, I'm so excited to have Angela here with us today. I'm excited to learn from her and all of her wisdom. Um, She has created some amazing resources, including a book that is just chock full of information and uh, resources for for FASD mamas. And uh, what a sigh of relief to have something that you can go to and look at. And so that's not her only her only specialty. She is a background in social work and um, I'm excited about her sharing kind of the social work aspect of all of this and with a special needs perspective. So all that to say, Angela, can you tell us more about yourself? Cause I know that I just fell short in all of the introductions. Yeah, no, that's great. First of all, thanks so much for, uh, I'm so pleased about this connection and thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Um, I think we have a lot of similar um, goals and aspirations and that is to raise awareness and to uh, build a more inclusive service delivery system and support systems right within our own homes and in our communities. So I think um I am a I am a social worker in private practice up here in Ontario, Canada. Um, I started out as a child and youth worker, and I've spent um, you know over twenty five years in the field working with a variety of very uh, resilient and caring and resourceful and super duper um, parents and caregivers and little people and young and big people. Um, you know, I, it's it's just fascinating how um, how this you know, prenatal alcohol exposure in particular affects people across the lifespan. So I'm particularly passionate about that. But interestingly enough, my very first person that I ever supported in my life had fetal alcohol syndrome at the time, and uh, which is not even a diagnostic term that we use up here in Canada anymore. We use more inclusive FASD. Um, either with sentinel features or without, but this little fella, um, you know, he was, he was pretty identifiable. So we all knew even back then 25 plus years ago that he had fetal alcohol syndrome. And so I was imprinted really early on uh, with the complexities and the risks associated with alcohol. But when you fast forward the next 10 or 15 years of my career, um, there were many people who now I know were impacted by prenatal alcohol exposure, but were not so identifiable. So I have a particular interest in helping to uncover some of those puzzling presentations and uh, link it to a brain-based and neural developmental condition rather than um, mental health and the focus on parenting and maybe lack thereof, we might be assuming, right? Or so I really want to reduce, really help to reduce the the uh, the stigma and then also help help people feel like they are better understood um, and to reduce the trauma and reduce the the, both, I, I, my, my vision statement, I suppose, if I have one, would be I want to reduce both the impact and the incidences mm-hmm. of prenatal alcohol exposure. So that's a little bit about me. But I, I, I am in southwestern Ontario. I am licensed to practice across Ontario, but licensed to train all over the place. So, mm-hmm. Amen. I love that. Um, I love your vision and how succinctly you've kind of narrowed that down. It is amazing. I make up from your 
comment about looking back and seeing kind of all the different FAS years that you have serviced, mm-hmm. that there is not an easy diagnosis. It's not something that these people knew about. It's not something that their parents or their adoptive parents knew about. Like mm-hmm. nobody knew no. and nobody's telling them and nobody's like, we're just not talking about it. And so I think the work you're doing is so important um, and serving and educating resources too. Like what an amazing thing. And so our, you know, our podcast is about adoption and special needs and we kind of go back and forth on, on both, but so much of my heart in this podcast is as an adoptive mom, I didn't know I had special needs kids. Like I didn't know that's what I was signing up for. Right. right. And it wasn't until years later that I was like, oh my goodness gracious, we are definitely, definitely in the special needs category and yeah, everything about behaviors, everything about is all based on brain damage. And it was lovely to talk about attachment and have those tools and have all of the parenting skills. But the truth is that couldn't change anything, right? It can help. It can, all of those things. But I think so often we look at other people like in the grocery store, throwing a huge fit or a huge tantrum. And I'm so quick to judge and assume that that mom's not doing her job. She needs to discipline him. She needs to do like whatever. I'm so quick to judge. And I think that having RFAS years has given me so much more compassion and allowed me to step into that where it's, I'm like, it's not about parenting. You have zero control over this whatsoever. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. That's so important. And I, and I guess I've just been in the business long enough to know that I've seen, you know, in our efforts to mitigate the risks associated with trauma and attachment and all of those parenting and adverse childhood experiences. I mean, of course, those things are important and they're, they're really legitimate considerations as we move towards uh, supporting families overall. But the, you know, the fact of the matter is adverse childhood experiences all focus on environment. They all focus on things that have happened to the kids or to the family and that that is a heavy load, uh, you know, and I've seen so many families that, you know, biological or fostered or adopted a family, whatever. But, I, you know, when babies are adopted at months of age and they're in with a really resilient, resourceful, loving, compassionate family, um, you know, those people recover from trauma, right? External and, and environmental traumas. People recover Um a, a lot easier, I would say, or a lot more often um, with, you know, positive outcomes, unless there's pre-existing brain trauma. And that that's something that's just so often missed. And I've seen families be torn apart. I've seen families at risk. And, you know, one time I did a chart review and I share this in my training all the time because it was just so pointed to me. You know, I did a chart review and I added up all the assessments, all the, 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 the uh, psychiatry uh, consults, the developmental pediatricians, residential treatment at one point to the tune of $95,000. And that was before anybody even thought to ask about prenatal exposures. And, you know, at that point, I can remember the mom saying to me, you know, and if they send me to one more parenting class, you know, I'm going to lose my mind. And I will never forget that. Because that that to me was just so heartbreaking and so telling, you know, and then and then after that, I went to, you know, a variety of different what we call community of practices. So if we want to learn specifically about sexualized behaviors, for example, 
And so I went to this uh, to this community of practice and all of the case examples spoke about really odd behaviors and really challenging sexually related behaviors that were getting people into some trouble. But the focus was all on neglect and trauma and um, exposure to things that they shouldn't have seen. But there was also a history that was documented of addictions with the families. And so what was what I was seeing is that these parents were now um, sober and clean and really adhering to all of the best practices and the, you know, the suggestions made, but the kids were still very puzzling. And so now we've got, you know, individuals who are struggling with their own mental health that are recovering and working so hard but yet still not getting the results that people are expecting. And so the system is blaming them. And so then, you know, I'm sitting through this, this community of practice and I'm like, oh, how am I going to broach this subject without, you know, I don't want to make the guest speaker feel awkward that I'm, you know, debunking their suggestions or their, their theories around this. But, you know, it was clear to me that these kids had been impacted and these odd behaviors were not the parent-child relationship oriented. Right. It was it was more than that. So so anyways, it turned out to be good. I came back as a guest speaker and we all shared some really interesting conversations. But it was you know, this was a room full of 60, 60 clinicians who were learning all about trauma and attachment and missing. Right. So yeah. uh, mm-hmm. it's frustrating. Well, it really is. And, and, you know, and I just supported people this week who in adoptive situations, they've got a really good community where they're supporting one another. And, and, you know, this one's getting going for an FASD diagnosis. This one now we now know has prenatal alcohol exposure. And I said, you know, are, are all of your family, like, is everyone? And she goes, yeah, like every single one of them. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, and, and didn't sign up for that either. Right. So it's, it's real. It's, it's, we need to really do a, a different job around prevention and awareness and, and offering relevant and helpful supports. Yeah. Which is definitely what you're doing. I love it. Okay. Um, besides, I mean, like ideally the whole system would just change, right. And people would be compassionate and understanding and not mm-hmm. say stupid things about parenting yes. to the parents who are clearly doing everything in their power to be the best parents ever to this child. Um, I realize we can't really do that overnight. I'm curious what your encouragement is to the parents of these kiddos. They're having all these struggling behaviors. They're seeing all these red flags that hopefully right now they're realizing, oh, that could be a thing, FASD. Um, how, how would you equip that parent to really step in and give their child the best support, even though the world around them is not really ready for that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a tricky one, because I really don't think any of us can do it alone. However, um, in the home, I think, well, I think it it involves a lot of advocacy, but it really involves being in tune with your own individual and your and your gut, like and listening to uh, how best can we protect this individual in the environment that we have, right? So recognizing that these are brain-based symptoms rather than uh, willful behaviors and really do a little bit of homework around understanding some of the commonalities so that we're not shocked when we, when kids are telling us lies or when, you know, things are in our backpacks that don't belong to us or, you know, when there's social difficulties at school and that kind of thing. So, you know, really doing our best to protect people from making poor or dangerous decisions right? Because impulsivity is real. 
um, problem solving is not as available without some good time, you know, to take to process information. So I always encourage, you know, people to really actually, first of all, slow down, you know, um, and then, you know, make the environment conducive to less restrictions, less no's, fewer no's, I guess it would be, and, and just more, you know, comfort and security. And I think, I think if there was one thing that's really most helpful for parents is to reevaluate, you know, what we expect um, from biological age and really reducing that. So what do people, what do two-year-olds or, or toddlers and preschoolers need when they're dysregulated? And then how do we offer that to somebody who's 10 or 15 or 21? So I think that's, that's, you know, I think that's really helpful. And, and most of the family members that I know of went, oh, yeah, you know, like we're, we're trying to logic it out of them or behaviorally modify, <laughs> you know, in the heat of the moment. And, and that's just not even possible. That. Yeah. yeah, I think understanding that dysmaturity piece is huge of yeah. just like, hey, they may look like they're 12, but oh my goodness, they're more like a yeah. four-year-old in this area, like a two-year-old in this area. That's you know right. what? But they can read and they read like a 12-year-old, like whatever those things are and really embracing those gifts and then setting, like resetting those expectations for younger ages. And it's right. so hard. I know that as a mom, it's so hard when you know, I know these things about my kids, right? I know that he's going to throw a two-year-old fit and I'm going to be frustrated because he's 12 and he should not be throwing a two-year-old fit. Like I still have these like moments of just rah, like we should not be doing this, but really calming yourself down and figuring out a way to like reset those expectations and kind of anticipate what they're going to do and how can you set them up for success in that area? Well, it's so interesting because I'm working with an, with uh, adults right now as well. And adult assessments are even harder to get. And imagine living your whole life, you know, up until you're 35 or 40 years old, not knowing why you're making really impulsive decisions and you're not learning from your mistakes and that kind of thing. So, but it was interesting because I had somebody just recently say, you know, just got a diagnosis and is doing so much better in terms of self-compassion, compassion for others and their approach with her, but going through some bumps and bruises and ups and downs. And, and she's like, you know, I have FASD. It doesn't go away just because we know we have it now, you know, like even at 35, 45, 55, we still have a brain-based condition that sometimes trips us up. And we still need that compassion and we need people to not take it personally. We need people to walk away and, you know, take a breath before we're responding. Right. So it doesn't, yeah, it's, it's just really fascinating to see the ongoing life challenges that, you know, there are, there are lots of hopeful moments, lots of beautiful moments, lots of gifts that, that these, you know, individuals with who have prenatal alcohol exposure in their history, they do have, but but there are ongoing challenges that we need to continue to support. Mm-hmm. What does that support look like once like I, so mine are more on the severe side and that they have really low IQs. Um, I, I don't really see them like maybe one could do a group home situation, but the other two I'm like, oh. and granted they're, we're in our tweens right now. So I'm not writing their, like their future in stone by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But at the same time, I'm trying to have realistic expectations of what our future is going to look like. Yeah. And I'm I'm pretty sure that two of them will be with us for possibly a really long time, if not the rest of our lives, right? Yeah. 
Um, how do you set up parents to walk that road? Is well, that, that's such a loaded question, I know, but. It is a loaded question. I think that it's really important to recognize that grief is a part of this. And this diagnosis is a family diagnosis. And so, you know, I just had a mom talk to me about sitting in a hot tub with her friends and she's an older mom, right? So, uh, you know, the other moms are talking about universities and all the stress that are going on with those kinds of things. And then this mom is sitting here going, oh, I wish those were my stressors, you know, and looking ahead, it looks so bleak and there's tears in her eyes. And even though she's trying to pretend that everything's fine, you know, so, so those are real and we have to be able to feel those feelings and honor them and, and expect the grieving process to sort of ebb and flow. But at the same time, I think it's also really important to obviously always be strength-based in our approaches, try our best to find things and make community connections for our people that give them a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging, because I think that's just so imperative. I also think that we have to develop a circle of care and make the plans for adulthood so that when we're not available or when we want to retire or when we want, you know, looking ahead, right? When we want to travel, um, now, those things are, you know, they're different for families who have kids with special needs, there's no doubt, but to build those communities so that people can support one another so that you can have a week off or a weekend off if you need it. Um, I think all those things are really, really important and recognizing that this sounds so cliche, but the sun will come up tomorrow, you know, with or without the chaos. And so we still have to be able to try to find moments and and I really encourage people to take a break from all the learning and all the parenting classes and all the you know the research and just take a break from FASD for a while and just be I think that's that's sometimes really important as well so I don't know if that helped or not but it's a lot it does I yeah I because I think about it and I'm like well nobody really signed up unless they purposely went out and adopted a special needs child um but I, I feel like nobody if you gave birth to a special needs child, that was a surprise. It wasn't what you had planned. Right. And then when you adopt kids and you think you're adopting healthy kids, because you don't feel like you could handle special needs kids. And then all of a sudden you have special needs kids and it's never something you really sign up for. And I, I feel and, uh, in my circumstance, I've seen many, many families who've really felt like they were uh, ill-equipped or not qualified, re- really recognizing the complexities and feeling like they're not. So they've actually checked that box, you know, or didn't check that box, however it works, right? Just say, yeah. I, I can't do that. And then, you know, in one family in particular, like there's three, you know, three in a family of six that have the full-on diagnosis. And and that's that's so challenging for them because they're there's this inner angst around what's the right thing to do and how can I be in this situation and what does my life look like moving forward? You know, even though there's a all, you know, all kinds of love and, and commitment and wouldn't trade it for anything, but yet still concerned, right. About what things are going to look like and how they're going to manage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, let's take a quick break. Mama, I know that you are doing a great job, but maybe there's something you've been neglecting like yourself or your marriage, the rest of your family or the systems in your home, or maybe you're just ready for a change, but you don't know where to start. That's where we come in. Mama Systems can help you put systems in place so that your family is more organized, more peaceful, and more balanced. And so that you feel like you can get everything done that you need to get done during the day. We'll help make sure that you have a plan to advocate for your child 
in school and in the community, that you take care of yourself, your marriage, and the rest of your family, and that you have systems in place to help build teamwork mentality in your home and make daily life more manageable. All of this is doable and you deserve it, Mama. Check out mamasystems.net today. All right, back to our show. Uh, I'm wondering about like you, when you're talking about the future and I think about it as like time chunks of like right now when I have all these little people in my home and then in the future and I've kind of, my big kids can figure it out and yeah, whatever. My bio kids can figure out their life and I'm not concerned about after they're gone. <laughs> yeah. But our other ones, I'm like, I am concerned about that. And I want to, and part of me like wants to like, let's figure out all the programs right now that we're going to do. So we have them all lined up and like plan, plan, plan. But I think that so much of that probably starts right now. I'm just having this realization. So I'm talking it out with you. Yeah. Um, starts right now in the connections that we're building and the support we're getting now. And so not trying to be a hero and doing it all yourself, but really pulling in those, those community partners, whether that be through a Medicaid program or be through the school district or I mean, you name it, any of those things and bringing them in now so that way they grow with your child. And they give you connections along as you, you grow with your child. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that that's really important. And I mean, I do really look forward to the day when families don't have to advocate so hard and push so hard to get access to the services that are, they're so deserving of. Right. And so in need. Um, but, uh, but for now we still have to do some advocacy. At least we do here, you know, it's, it's getting a little bit better. It's getting a lot better, but it's still, you know, we've still got a long way to go before people really understand the complexities and, and to fit, you know, people with, with uh, complicated and beautiful brains, which is what I refer because that's, and that's the name of my book, because again, I'm really passionate about uncovering some of the ones that, you know, broadening our audience a little bit, right? Because there's so many people that struggle with mental health conditions and, you know, relationship difficulties, yada, 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 that actually have been impacted. We just, you know, don't know it. So, so I refer to people with complicated and beautiful brains, because again, I've seen so many creative, brilliant uh, pockets of brilliance, right? Uh, With which um, is both a plus and sometimes a negative, because people see those pluses and those brilliant, um, you know, that, that brilliance and then wonder, well, if you can do this, why, why can't you do this? But that really makes it so that some of our, our people don't fit well in our existing systems, right? They don't, they don't, they don't fit with our developmental services, for example, because they don't, you know, they, they don't look the same or, you know what I'm saying? And then, and then mental health and our mental health uh, systems don't, well, no, they have a developmental disability, so we can't service them. You know what I mean? So there's, there's, no, yeah, there's two different pockets of it and your child could have a great IQ, but still be struggling all these other areas and yeah, decision-making ability is not there and we're making horrible decisions, but because we're yeah, IQ wise, fine we can't get any services and that's what we need is to help in services. So, so yeah, so there's been, a, there's a recent um, article, I can send it to you afterwards, but it talks about the integral role of social workers in mm-hmm. 
cleaning and identifying. And so it was really interesting because the timing of this was perfect because I have been an assessment coordinator for a multidisciplinary team. I still work in assessment, but within my scope of practice, I do a really good screen and assessment. And I'm, I'm, because I've got so much experience, I know what to look for. And when the flags go up for me and when I say, Oh, this is, this is puzzling, right? This, this requires further investigation. So I'm, I'm just doing some training um, that's available online and it's available. Like this is a global issue. This is not just, you know, anywhere, like, you know, it's, it's everywhere. And so I am offering some training because in light of our limited assessment services, we still can be really helpful today by recognizing that this is something that's puzzling and curious and neurodevelopmental in nature. So let's apply that lens. And just going back to those strategies that I mentioned earlier, right? go with that that lens and you will do no harm and if we and as we as social workers we can then connect to ot speech and language and physicians who are fasd informed and then create that um, service pathway that's relevant and helpful even without a diagnosis right um, and I think that's so important. So I'm offering training and it's online and, and, you know, we've had our first round and so far everybody says that they would recommend it to other social workers. So I'm <laughs> thrilled about that. I'm thrilled about the interest, you know, that people want to enhance their skills. And I'm thrilled that people are starting to recognize that FASD is part of our job descriptions. It, it just, you know, get off it. Even if you don't think you're funded for it, you are doing it anyway, because when people are entering the mental health field or looking for a psych evaluation in education, you can guarantee that the prevalence rates are much higher in, in those scenarios than in general population. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. our countries are paying for it regardless if they're right. funding it or not. And yeah. then I'm like, well, why don't we just fund it on the front end and create a better life for everyone in the country? Right. Uh, you know, I'm really hoping well, that's going to come. I really, I'm still ridiculously optimistic. Honestly, Laura, I'm, I'm ridiculously optimistic that that the light bulb is going to turn on and things are going to. I mean, when you think about the investment, you know, I, I gave you that quick little chart review of of ninety five thousand dollars, and the family was at ready to break down. So you you might as well, it, you know, have not offered anything. And then on top of that. Like that's the financial cost. So if you're a banker, it's not hard to figure out that that's a worthwhile investment. But then you think about the emotional cost to these families. Yeah. And how different we can be. And, you know, having a diagnosis does not solve the problem, but it certainly provides some clarity and gives people traction, right? And and able to to say, okay, you know what? I do really well at this, but I kind of suck at that. And I need help with that. And and I think that that's another thing as parents and caregivers, my suggestion is always to talk openly about the implications. You don't have to say it's because of alcohol if you don't want to, but this is how your brain works. And so, you know, you're pretty impulsive and sometimes your decisions don't match your values and that feels awful. So let's talk about that, you know, and let's figure out ways that we can help with those impulses. Um, I, love, I love that, the way that you just described that, because I often wonder how, how do I explain this to my kids? Like, yeah, yeah. I want them to know that they're absolutely loved by their mama, like their birth mama. And yeah. she adored them. And I, I make up that she as well is on the spectrum and yeah. she's a product of the system and, you know, just all of her life choices. You're like, uh-huh. Yep. And I, I'm like, I, I don't 
I don't blame her because I don't think she knows. Like, I don't, there's no, I, yeah, I, it makes sense to me that that would be a choice that she'd make. Yeah. But I don't want my kids thinking that their mom harmed them, you know? Well, no. And, and that kind of anger and resentment serves no purpose, right? It's yeah. just, and nobody does this on purpose. Now, do I get a little bit of fr- frustrated when people dismiss the evidence and continue to consume or, you know, kind of not want to acknowledge that? Yeah, I do. I get a little frustrated with that because I feel like all somebody has to do is follow me around for a couple of days and you'd know, you know, I'm working with, you know, teenagers who have high blood pressure, who have high cholesterol, who are, you know, medically very fragile. All of this is related to alcohol exposure, right? Um, you know, little people who are reaching puberty at age eight or starting it at six, seven. Yes. You know, early, early onset. Of, it's such a bad, bad, bad joke when you think about it, right? Like this dismaturity coupled with, yeah. I should, shouldn't have used a bad joke. It, it's just, it's just a terrible dichotomy, right? Where you're talking about somebody who's so young, but then starts to mature physically so much faster. That's very common as well. So there's just, you know, there's over 400 comorbidities, right? That that could be a part of this uh, that's related to alcohol. So we need to do a, a better job, I think, in prevention, right? And, and I'm hopeful that that'll happen. Mm-hmm. What would be, is, I mean, I, I realize age is a very relative term here because we're thinking dismaturity all along the way. So at what point do you tell them Hey, this is, this is your story. This is mm-hmm. what fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is or disorders are. And these are kind of how you fall into that. And this is why Do we just kind of wait for their lead on that or. Um, actually, I, I really encourage conversations as early as we can discuss it. So in other words, if somebody's five and six and they're struggling on the schoolyard with aggression or, you know, uh, just affect dysregulation, um, you know, we can just start start talking about how sometimes our brains don't allow us to slow down, you know, and to be able to to handle those big feelings in a healthy way. So these are things that we have to work a little harder at. And sometimes you need, um, you know, mommy or teacher or brother or sister or auntie or daddy or whatever, you know, to, to help you with those cues, because maybe we can start to see when you're starting to feel a little bit agitated. It does, you know, we always say that kids go from zero to 60 really quickly, but they're never really at zero, right? So like, there's a lot going on for kids, right? And for, well, for everybody. So I think to, to, to help coach them along, but I think the earlier people start to recognize that this is a, a brain-based thing and that they have complicated and beautiful brains or however you want to say it. I mean, I've had kids that don't want to know that their brains are broken or they feel like their brains are broken. And that's not what we want to be saying, but we want to say parts of our brains are inconsistent, you know, or not, not always available to us. I use terms like inconsistent memory and, you know, our impulse control button, we can't always count on it. So what can we do to be helpful? You know, just those kinds of things um, and do a lot of validating our feelings because that's important no matter who we are. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like when you're talking about bringing someone else in to help with impulse control, thinking about teachers and stuff and I make up that that would look like when I'm talking to teachers about behavior and about trauma and all the things that I'm sharing with them at the beginning of the year so that they're a little more compassionate towards us and our family, <laughs> um, that 
maybe at some point bringing kiddos in on that and making that more of a conversation of like, Hey, so when he feels this way, this is what we do. Is that something that you could do and kind of train him to advocate for himself in that way? Yeah, I think I think that's so important. It's it's really interesting because we we're working with some families now, and you know the kids are struggling, and we're we're they're asking us about you know school report cards, for example. Like they're they're often not that great. So what do we do about that? And I say, you know, we have to have open conversations about our kids with our kids about the fact that you know the report cards aren't that great, but but yet not putting so much emphasis on on what we get like academics to me is not important what's important is that school is a safe place and that there's a social opportunity and people feel like they belong and they you know it's good and they will continue to learn incrementally but if there's ongoing challenges then we need we need to help our kids understand that these are real challenges for you and it's not your fault but what can we do what do you want to you know what would help you to to be on task a little bit easier or to be present or you know what's your learning goals and objectives right so I do encourage that parts of the conversation but we can't pretend that kids are flying through school without issues because then they get to high school and they don't want any help because they've done fine thank you very much yeah right huh (laughs) yes so yeah it's it's a lot This this has been such a great conversation I feel like I've been able just to think through some stuff that we've been struggling with as well. So I'm, I feel really grateful for you coming on today and for sharing your wisdom with us. And will you tell people the joy of your book and all the QR codes and all the resources and everything? Okay. Well, yeah, I do. It's, it's, it's on, it's available on Amazon. I don't know if you can see that, but it's called the complicated and beautiful brain. And it is pretty neat because it does have um, you know, QR codes that can just zap you into more uh, articles and uh, information and research papers and position papers that can really help to deepen our learning. So pretty proud that it's actually a required reading in some of our colleges up here. And I'm really hoping that because uh, I feel like everybody entering the profession, the helping profession, which is broad, they need to understand that FASD is a part of it or prenatal alcohol exposures are a part of what we're doing. Yes. Yeah. And what I, what I really love about your book is that we get kind of the flyover. And then if there's something that you want to go deeper in, then you can go deeper in that, but it's yeah. not so overwhelming that you put it down after a page because yeah. there've been books like that. There've been books like that for me, but this yeah. is not. I've written it with the intention, uh, mindful of language so that if somebody is 45 and wondering and read it themselves and then, and, and see themselves in these pages, then that's okay. And it has happened. Uh, where people have just wept and said, oh my goodness, you know, I finally feel like it's not my fault. I finally feel like this makes sense. This is, this is me in this book. Um, and uh, yeah, and it was, it was uh, recommended by a professor in Alberta and he recommended my book and Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey's book, What Happened to You in the same sentence. So I was like, first of all, very humbled and dumbfounded, but secondly, also seeing the opportunity to augment our trauma work with this, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I love that. Yeah. So I'm blessing. pretty excited and pretty, pretty passionate about this whole thing, sometimes annoyingly so, but I'm, I feel like I'm in the same boat. So we're here together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I just think with that little piece, I just hearing about that lady or man, I don't know who it was, but weeping over your book and saying, like, I feel like there's not anything wrong with me. I'm totally butchering whatever you just said, but yeah. hopefully you're with me. Like yeah. thinking about that and 
thinking about going through life that long and thinking like I'm broken, there's something wrong with me. I'm stupid. I'm like all the negative things and like putting all those labels on yourself and then living that out. Yeah. And what freedom a diagnosis can bring. Oh, like I think often as parents, not me, I really want a good diagnosis because then that can help me with everything, (laughs) helps me figure out where we are. But I have found that a lot of parents don't want to get a diagnosis. They don't want to label their kids. They don't want to put that on them. And I think this is kind of proof of the contrary, right? Of I really feel like I'm not about labeling either, but I'm about diagnostic clarity so that we can put people on a path of relevant supports and we can understand and they can understand. And I think that we all, you know, the prognosis is better the earlier so that the individual can see this, these adjustments as being part of their, their everyday and not something that's, you know, but yeah, can you imagine not understanding why and, and being diagnosed with anxiety, depression, personality disorder, PTSD, which, um, you know, trauma is based on perception, but sometimes our perception's not accurate with, you know, people with complicated brains. So we've got all, all kinds of stuff to, to tease out, right, and understand there. But then now we're looking at ADHD diagnosis, and now we're looking at autism diagnosis. So sometimes we've got six or seven or eight diagnoses and multiple trips to, you know, and, and people try so hard and work so hard at their mental wellness, yet still fall short and are like, what in the heck? Right. So, so yeah, I I really believe, and that's why, like, you know, we don't have enough assessment services, unfortunately. I think it was you mentioned that, you know, Texas really doesn't have much going on right now. Right. And that's, that's very sad, but it's not just Texas. There's a lot of places that don't have access to diagnostic services. If you're an adult in Ontario and you don't live in Toronto or Thunder Bay, you know, you don't, you don't have access either for a lot so we have to build them and so that's why I'm really really passionate about you know just making sure that all of us as helpers are better able to identify and screen and we can build assessments over time and and get that clarity that we need people deserve it amen thank you very well very grateful okay well thanks so much for having me Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.